So hear God's word, Luke chapter 10 from verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his, on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave, him, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So today, um, this evening, this is the second week in a series of talks looking at four, four parables from Luke's Gospels. And I've called this series Jesus' Subversive Stories. Jesus' Subversive Stories. Now the parables, they are, said this last week, they're a vital part of Jesus' teaching in Luke's Gospel. And I said then that if you want to understand who Jesus is, Jesus' identity, his, his mission, and then his call, his challenge to us, then we need to understand these parables. These parables, these are stories with intent. Jesus spoke them to us to, in order to bring about a change in us. It would change the way we think, the way we feel, the way we act, the way that we would worship. And I called this series Jesus' Subversive Stories because what these stories do, they, they turn things upside down. They turn our view of the world upside down. We're forced now to look at the world from a slightly different angle. And this evening's parable is possibly the most well-known of all of them. Probably, you know, in the heading in the Bible, this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. A good Samaritan. It almost goes without explanation. The, the term uh, Samaritan, it's become part of our English language. And what is a Samaritan? It's not simply a person from Samaria. A Samaritan is, is a helpful person. A Samaritan is a charitable person. Someone who helps out in a time of need. You've got the charity. 
the, the Samaritans, the Samaritans that were a charity aimed to, at helping people who were in real distress, in particular, helping those who were at risk of taking their own lives. But the way that word Samaritan is used, actually just a little bit more widely in culture, a Samaritan, well, it, it's about doing good. A Samaritan is, is about doing good to people in need. Now, that's hardly revolutionary, is it? It's not exactly a subversive story to talk about it's in church. It's not a subversive message. You know, a church that isn't encouraging people to do good and help people who are in need, if a church isn't doing that, you're going to say, well, something's not going right here. Something's gone wrong. But it's not just church that tells people, go out and help others. It's not, ch- it's not just church that says, go and help people who are in need. There are... You go out there, there are plenty of people who tell you that you don't need God to do good. And the way they read this parable or what they get out of this parable which makes them feel I don't know, kind of like warm and fuzzy inside is to say, well, this parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, it's an inspiration for us to be a kinder society, a more thoughtful society. But at the end of the day, you find people and they say, but it's a story. It's just a story that Jesus, a good man, a good teacher told, but you, you, know, you can find the same kind of story elsewhere in the world. What do we make of that? What do we make of that? Do you need God in order to do good? But what if this story, what if this story, and the reason why Jesus tells us this story, goes deeper than that? What if it's deeper than just telling us Go out there and do good. Go out there and make a difference to your world. The challenge here in this story, the intent behind the story, is love. Love. Let's back up a moment. Let's back up a moment. What's going on here? What's going on in the whole passage? Jesus, it says here, he's being tested. You've got an expert in the law, a teacher in the law, who comes up to Jesus and says, you know, what must I do? Teacher, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In of itself, that question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, is possibly the most vital question anyone can ask. It's the same kind of question as, what must I do to enter into the kingdom of God? Or what must I do to be saved? It's all kind of saying the same thing. And Jesus being a good rabbi, good teaching kind of practice, he flips it back to him. He hears a question, he answers it with another question. What do you think? You're the expert in the law. You tell me, what do you see here? Well, Jesus, the expert in the law says, you've got to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, brilliant answer, perfect. You know, kind of like, you know, a star, brilliant. Now, the expert, he's not just kind of coming up with something himself. He's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting the Old Testament. That first part there about loving God, loving God with, you know, all that you have, that's, that, those verses, that line is taken from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. It's one of the books of the law. And it was a very special saying. It was a a revered part of the Old Testament law, and it's called the Shema. And it's kind of like um, 
a summary, a summary of how we're not simply obeying God, but that we obey him because of love. You know, we're not simply to obey God, but we, we obey him in love. So that's the first part. And then that second part, love your neighbor from yourself, and that's from the Old Testament, another Old Testament book of law, Leviticus. And these two that are brought together, they're a brilliant summary of all of God's laws for his people. Someone called these the master commands. They are the twin pillars on which, you know, everything rests. Love God with all that you have and love your neighbor as you want to be loved. And Jesus says, perfect, brilliant answer. Do this, don't just know it, do this and you will live. You've got to live this out. But this teacher, this expert, he can't let it go. He can't let it go because he's after something from Jesus. And it's not positive. Yeah, but, but who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? That's what he says. And in one sense, the parable is answering that question, who is my neighbor? But to put it another way, to put it in some of Jesus, in, in the words that were just quoted, who do I need to love? Because this isn't simply about doing good, but this is about loving. This is about loving. And so then Jesus tells the story. He tells the parable about a man who's on his journey, who's attacked, and he's not just mugged, but he's stripped of his clothes. He's stripped of his clothes, he's stripped of his dignity, and he's left there on the side of the road to die. And a priest comes along. Maybe those who are listening are thinking, ah, and see what's going to happen here. Priest comes along, and this priest, probably been working in the temple, says there, verse, you know, kind of verse 30, verse 31, a priest happens to be going down the same road. He sees the man, sees the man, and he passes on the other side. Then a Levite appears on the same road. And the Levites, they also worked in the temple. They assisted the priest. Verse 32 tells us, he sees him, does the same thing, passes by on the other side of the road. The priest and the Levite. That's the equivalent of Chris and me, or Dave, or Rania, or Keisha at the back, or Enoch, come to mention, any of our glamorous assistants. They see, they walk by. There's no reasons given. There are no reasons given why, and people have kind of come up with various things, but they're not the focus of the story. Jesus isn't out there to try and expose and say, point the finger at them, look at them, look at what they're doing. No, no, it's about who comes next, the Samaritan, because this is where it gets, this is where the tension comes in. This is where it gets awkward for those who are listening. If you've been in and around church, if you've grown up hearing the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan, you know that the Jews and the Samaritans did not get it on. That's putting it mildly. They were enemies. They hated each other. There are historical reasons why they hated each other. Don't need to get into that now. But they're kind of like half-cousins. They're racist, but there's animosity. There's mistrust. And it develops, and at times it kind of blows out into outright hatred. 
some of the, the writings that we, we can find from, from that time, Jewish writings of that time, they would, there was one I came across, and it said something like, Samaritans need to be pushed into the ditch, not pulled out of it. It's the kind of thing that was said about Samaritans. Another bit said, it called Shechem, which was one of the main cities in, in Samaria, called Shechem the city of the senseless. It's not good, is it? And it's a two-way hatred as well. This isn't just about one group of people picking on another. It's two-way hatred. There's another historical writing from the, um, from the historian Josephus, and he's writing, this was later than Jesus' time, and he wrote of an occasion when there were Jews who were on a, on, on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and they were passing through Samaritan territory, and they were attacked and killed. And that led to reprisals. That led to revenge attacks and Samaritans being killed. And, there's, and there was an investigation which eventually made its way all the way up to Emperor Claudius in Rome. The Jews and the Samaritans, they did not like each other. And the point is that when Jesus starts by saying it's the Samaritan who sees and stops to help, that it's the Samaritan who gives up his time and his money and at risk to his, his own safety, how do you think people are listening to that? How do you think they're listening? They're not cheering the Samaritan, are they? They're not cheering Jesus. Their stomach is turning. Because this is subversive stuff. This is not who they expect the hero to be. Can you see why this is more than just about doing good, being a kind person? It's got to be something stronger, something tougher. This is about love. When the Bible talks about loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and then loving your neighbor as yourself, it's the same original word. It's the same form. We're meant to see that that. That command to love God and the command to love each other, we're meant to see that two, the two link together. Now, it's not saying that just because, because we love and we worship God, that means now we worship each other. You know, of course not. And of course, it's not saying that because we are called to love each other and help meet each other's physical needs at times, that, that that's what we have to do to God, that God somehow has these physical needs that need, need meeting. No. But it's not saying, love God and be kind to your neighbor. They know, love them. We don't look for ways out of loving God. We shouldn't be looking for ways out of loving God. We shouldn't be looking for ways out of loving our neighbor. So how then does this parable help us to think deeply about how we love our neighbor? There are two obvious questions, I think, which kind of come out of that then. Whom do we love? And how do we love them? Whom do we love? How do we love that? Does, this, does loving our neighbor, does that command to love our neighbor mean literally loving everybody? For the Jews of Jesus' day, those who took seriously that command, love your neighbor as yourself, that command found in Leviticus, um, they understood that their neighbor wasn't simply the person who lived either side of them or even the people in their same in the same town or village. But really, that, their neighbor was other Jews, people like them. But Jesus' parable, it blows that all out of the water. He's saying, look, there is no limit. There is no boundary 
on whom we are called to love. Instinctively, we know that's right. Instinctively, we know that, that this is what, that's what's being got at here. But what does actually that look like? Well, let me just give a few examples. Loving your neighbor means loving people from different countries, from different races. I mean, that's really clear coming out here between the Jews and the Samaritans. There is no place for racism, racial prejudice in God's church. There is no place whatsoever for that. Now, that's easily said. It really easily said. But without thinking, we can, you know, we can harbor prejudice or misunderstanding about different people, about their backgrounds. We can have stereotypes which come out out of ignorance. So we need to educate ourselves. And we have to educate ourselves as Christians. Mentioned this book before, um, Healing the Divides, for the, for the purpose of the podcast. Jason Roach and Jessamine Bursell, Healing the Divides. Um, I found, I've read this book and found it really helpful. Um, we've got copies of it on sale in church here. I see a microphone being passed. Thank you. I found this book really helpful. Um, we've got copies. Some of you may have already bought it. Brilliant. Have you read it? Have you read it? See, I'm going to put it this way. If I'm being really being a bit provocative, I'm saying doing good is buying the book. Loving your neighbor is reading it and thinking about it. That's what loving your neighbor looks like. Now, the other thing that's mentioned here, it's not the central part of the book, but it's addressed here, is about loving people from different backgrounds, as in different economic backgrounds, people who've had different kinds of life experience. Class difference within church is a big thing. It's a big thing in our society. It's a big thing across churches. We need to love people regardless of their, rent, uh, their gender, regardless of their age, regardless of their politics. I'm not American, I'm not American, but over the past week, you know, there's been the American midterm elections, and on social media, I've seen some really unpleasant things said by supporters of Democrats and supporters of Republicans. Not, not the kinds of comments which are trying to engage with the issues, but basically just attacking people. It's just not, that's not love. That's not love. I, speaking personally here, we need to love people who follow different religions. I have to love people with whom I have serious theological differences. That does not mean I agree with them. That does not mean I agree with them. It doesn't mean I need to minimize the difference between them. I want to be unashamed in what I say about Jesus as the Son of God, Jesus as the way, the truth, the life, and what Jesus, the only, the only way to the Father. But that still means I've got to love people who disagree with that. I can't pretend that those things don't matter. They do. But it's because I love Jesus that I need to love my neighbor. I mean, it's one of the tragedies of our cultures that people think that if you disagree with them, that if you disagree strongly with them, that means that you hate them and that you can't love them. 
No, that's not true. So that's whom we love. But how do we love our neighbor? The love of the Samaritan is costly. It's self-sacrificial. In the parable, the, in, in the story, the attack happens on, on the Jericho Road, the route from Jerusalem to, to Jericho, and it's a dangerous road. And so in the story, when the Samaritan stops to help the man, he's actually putting himself at risk. He's putting himself at the risk of being robbed. He's giving his own money. He's leaving kind of two days' wages to pay for it. And what does he say afterwards to the the innkeeper? Look, if there's anything more, I'm the one who's paying. I'm the one who's footing, footing the bill for this. You know, this isn't, this isn't detached care. This isn't trying to maintain or keep um, a cool distance. This is a willingness to be involved. It's a willingness to be misunderstood too. When you love people, when you love your neighbor, when you care for them, when there are times when it's right to, to get involved, some people might question your motives. Some people may say, don't you think you're you're going a bit far? Don't you think you're doing a bit much on this? Yes, you need wisdom. Yes, you need wisdom. But it's a big ask. It's a big ask. The kind of love that Jesus is talking about, it's serious love. It's weighty love. Just think of our day and age. Just think of the kinds of things that we are being asked to get involved in. The kinds of kind of social justice campaigns that you can be involved in. Care for the environment. Care for refugees. Care for victims of sex trafficking. Care for victims of abuse, both child and adult. Care for the homeless. Care for those suffering from poverty. Those affected by the cost of living crisis. Care for the, for the families, the, you know, the just about managing families. Care for for people suffering who are, who are battling, you know, issues of mental health. I mean, just a whole list of them. Those are the big causes. And then sometimes loving your, ne- loving your neighbor means literally that. The elderly lady in the flat downstairs who needs help with the shopping. The single parents with the young, kid, with the young children who need a hand. All of these things which make demands on our time and our care and our attention. Do you feel the weight of it? You should do. Seriously, if you think all of it is manageable, then you're not doing it right. We're not doing it right. The truth is that trying to carry all the cares of the world, to carry the weight of loving your neighbors yourself, trying to carry that all on your own shoulders is impossible. Compassion fatigue is a real thing. It can be almost impossible to try and keep up. And especially as Jesus is saying, this isn't done, you know, kind of in a detached way, that this has to be done out of love. This has to come from the heart. We can feel so guilty about it. We can so feel so guilty that we're not doing it. And guilt is a really bad motivator for doing the right thing. Guilting people into love doesn't generate love, not love that lasts. 
So what do we do with this command then? To love your neighbor as yourself. What do we do with it? Do we just say, it's a nice ideal. Jesus is talking hypothetically here. It doesn't, that doesn't wash. That doesn't wash. So where does that power come from? Where does that strength come from? Where does the energy come from to persevere in this kind of love? Or where even does the wisdom come from to know where to love, how to place our energy? I think the answer comes when we take one step back from the parable and look at all of Jesus' life. See, the whole good news of Jesus' life, when we look through, when, when we read in the scriptures, it tells us that we all lived as enemies of God. You know, we're given a situation here of Jews and Samaritans at each other's throats. But what about all of humanity gathered together? All of humanity that somehow and to this day we live in rebellion against God? We hear God's commands and, you know, pick and choose. Oh, I like that. I'll have a bit of that. I'll have a bit of that. But that one, oh, no, no, thank you. Look, even if you think it's a bit harsh saying that we've lived in rebellion against God, you've got to admit that generally society wants to turn a deaf ear to God and say we're not interested. Or to put it another way, we would cross the road to avoid God, to avoid listening to him. And yet, the same good news that we find in God's words tells us that when we were dead, when we were like dead in our sins, in our lostness, that Jesus didn't see us, avoid us, and turn on the other side. Now, he came over and he rescued us. He loved us first. He made the first move to us. And he paid the full price for us. And that full price for us, that cost him his life. He died on the cross so that we could be forgiven. And not just then forgiven, but that we can be restored and now free to love him with everything and to love our neighbors as ourselves. One of the Old Testament promises about the time when the Messiah would come was that those who would trust in him would be given a new heart, a new capacity, a new ability to love, a heart of flesh to replace kind of a cold heart of stone, a, a heart that has God's commands written on them, the command to love God with all our energy and with all our passion and the command to love our neighbor as ourselves. Listen, if it was just down to us, if we had to stir up from within us all the motivation to love others, to love our neighbors as ourselves, if it was all just down to us, we're going to dry up. We're going to dry up. Or maybe when we see all our efforts at loving and, and trying to change the world, if, when we, we, if we see all our efforts and it's not really getting anywhere, it can lead us to become bitter and cynical about it. We can get overwhelmed with the task ahead and just want to bury our heads in the sand if it just comes down to us. Or maybe we can be involved in something and it goes well and we see success 
And we start to look down on other people, people who aren't involved in the same way as we are. We could start to feel full of pride because of our love. Look how great my love is. How deep is your love? But this is the motivation for our love. Gratitude for how Jesus first loved us. See, the cross says that Jesus' work on the cross, his death for us, the death that we did, that we deserved, that he paid for himself, the cross says that that work is complete and that Jesus will renew and transform the earth. And that renewal and that transformation starts from deep within us. It starts within our hearts. And the cross also says that even on your best day, when it feels like you're loving everyone, and, you know, with all that you've got, the cross tells us that even on that best day, you are still a sinner in need of rescue. But God's grace then, it changes us. The love that we have received means that we can love each other genuinely and fully and self-sacrificially as we are filled with the love of the Holy Spirit. Let's bow our heads and I'll lead us in a prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your grace, your sacrificial love for us means that we can be filled, not with, dis we're filled not with despair at the needs around us, that we're filled not with pride at what we are doing, but that we are filled with your spirit that we can have those commands to love you with everything we've got and to love our neighbors as we want to be loved, that that comes from you. Thank you that we can love you with passion and intensity. Thank you that we can now love our neighbors, not running from them, not thinking that we are a savior to them, but that in our love for them, we Point them to the ultimate Samaritan. It's not just a good Samaritan, but the best Samaritan, the one who gave his life for them. And so with all the things that we can do, we pray that you would give us individually the wisdom to know what we should do. And we pray that you would give us more of your spirit so that in our love, in our action, in our service, that we will be doing that in your strength and to your glory alone. We ask your precious name.